from Two Keto LLC. It's the Obesity Code Podcast with Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. Each week, we bring you lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program in Toronto, Canada. I'm Carl Franklin. And this week, we're talking about food as a reward. The Obesity Code Podcast is brought to you by Two Keto LLC who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. Today's show centers around IDM patient Mark Dorley, who says his problems with food started when he was very young. He grew up in the 70s and doesn't recall a lot of discussion about health and nutrition. You know, I don't know that I, from a psychological perspective, learned the coping skills to to avoid using food as a reward. And in my teenage years, the weight started to come on. I started to get more miserable, and it's just sort of a vicious cycle at that point. In past episodes of the Obesity Code podcast, the patients tended to have parents or siblings with either diabetes or pre-diabetes. Mark's story is a little bit different. My brother, he bucked the trend. My, my mom's overweight. My dad's moderately heavy, but my brother bucked the trend. He's an Adonis. I mean, he is, he's played, played in the NFL. He's like a, a federal agent now. He's just one of these big, strong, ripped guys. So I know that it's, it's not necessarily my genetics holding me back, but literally lifestyle. One possible explanation of why one sibling becomes quite insulin-resistant in later life and the other doesn't could be the environment in the mother's womb during pregnancy. And that, of course, is Richard Morris, co-host with me of the Two Keto Dudes podcast. Glucose is a small molecule that passes the placental barrier from mother to child easily. And so if mum has a lot of glucose in her blood, then the baby also has a lot of glucose in the womb. Insulin, however, is a very large molecule that doesn't pass the placental barrier. So the fetal pancreas has to make all of the insulin for the baby. This could be sensitizing the developing pancreas to hyperinsulinemia very early on in its development. I can personally identify with Mark I also grew up in the 70s and definitely understand food as a reward. Dr. Jason Fung, nephrologist and co-founder of Intensive Dietary Management, explains how using food as a reward, and mostly crappy, sugary, carby foods, becomes problematic. It's something to celebrate. So when we celebrate, we don't celebrate uh, necessarily with uh, something that is good for us. We celebrate with something that is really delicious, like candy or, or chocolate. And the reason that it's uh, so rewarding is that it lights up the sort of reward centers of our brain. So there's been lots of studies of refined carbohydrates particularly, as well as sugar. And what they find is that when you study uh, the neurobiology, there are certain centers in the brain which light up and make us feel good. So those are the same centers, for example, that cocaine would activate. And that's why these are so highly addictive, because people feel good about themselves. They get the high. In particular, what we call comfort food tends to be laden with sugar and starch. 
Those comfort foods generally are highly refined carbohydrates and starches because they light up the reward centers of our brain and make us feel good about ourselves. And that's why we go to them, chips and uh, ice cream, that kind of thing. You know, if you just break up, you don't curl up with a nice piece of salmon sashimi, you curl up with a tub of ice cream and start scooping it. So is food as a reward in and of itself a major reason we get fat? What if you eat a steak or a handful of macadamia nuts as a reward? For some people, they talk about food reward as sort of the reason we become fat. And that sort of gets uh, past the idea that, uh, well, it's just because food is so rewarding because uh, a lot of our processed foods are designed to be rewarding so that people will buy them. So it's really processed food that has the drug-like effect on us, right? There certainly is an element of truth in that because it's the uh, whole uh, problem with processing is that you take away all the things that are not good, so you leave a uh, higher proportion of the rewarding stuff, the starchy carbohydrates, which are easily absorbed because you've gotten rid of all the fat, gotten rid of all the uh, protein. So this carbohydrate is easily absorbed into the body. It's in a pure form. And um, oftentimes, for instance, with flour, when it's grind up very fine, the absorption into our bodies is much higher than we would normally get if it was in its natural form. Certainly there are some natural foods like sweet potatoes and fruits that contain sugar. So eating a yam, for example, that a carbohydrate needs work, uh, the stomach needs to work at it, the digestive system needs to work at it in order to absorb it, as opposed to eating white flour, where the food goes in, there's no protein, there's no fat to slow down the absorption, it's in a fine powder like cocaine, boom, it all goes into the, into the body right away. And then you get this high, you get this lighting up of the reward centers that you wouldn't normally get with natural foods. You know, we talk colloquially about sugar addiction, but is it real? Is there any science behind the idea that people are addicted to sugar? There's lots of studies where they've taken rats, for example, and they um, give them a choice between like cocaine and sugar. And sometimes, uh, many times, the rats will choose the sugar um, or they'll electrify a grid, for example, and put the uh, sugar water on the opposite side. And these rats will run across (laughs) this electrified grid, um, sustaining, you know, painful um, shocks to their feet just in order to get this sugar. And it's the same thing. You see how children sometimes are just desperate to eat the sugar. So we know as a teen, Mark was already having problems with weight and controlling his appetite and using food as a reward. But it really didn't hit him hard until about 2002. I didn't go to college right out of high school. I screwed around in my local town with my buddies and uh, maybe around age 25 decided it was time to go to college. And so I did and I, I continued on, went to grad school. I moved out to the East Coast. I lived in D.C. for eight years. And it was just in those seven or eight years that Mark put on an enormous amount of weight. In 2002, I was maybe 50 pounds overweight. By 2009, I was... 250 pounds overweight. When I asked Mark how he thinks it happened, he said he really didn't know. 
And that indicates he felt completely out of control. It absolutely, at that point, it becomes psychological. You know, I, I use food as a reward. I would not eat all day long and then go home and just crush a pizza and uh, anything. It, all bad and at the wrong times. This whole idea of not eating all day and then binging on carby foods at night should sound familiar to a lot of us. We think we can affect willpower to save us, so we don't eat. But our insulin is too high to burn body fat for fuel, so by dinner time we're literally starving. The hormones kick in and we are compelled to eat those comfort foods, even though we swore we wouldn't when we woke up in the morning. Then of course that makes us feel bad about ourselves, we feel like total failures, but at least the carbs make us sleepy so we can go to bed and forget about it. And in the morning, the cycle starts all over again. So there's um, clearly a physiological response to this, but remember that sugar in its pure form and flour in its pure form are not natural foods. It gives us power to know this because if we know that it's an addicting substance or a potentially addicting substance, when then we can steer clear of it. Nobody gives their children uh, cigarettes. We know it's addictive, so we say, well, you can have cigarettes, but make sure you're an adult so you know the consequences of this. But we don't do the same thing for sugar. In fact, we give people sugar as a reward. So in fact, it's associated with something good. Yes, it is addictive, but it's not like we give children cigarettes to reward them for some good grades, uh, give them a couple puffs, uh, you know, whenever they get an A. It'd be sort of ridiculous, but we have to understand that we're doing the same sort of thing, conditioning these children to link sugary foods and doing well and something that is good and something that we should do more of. So as we get to adulthood, of course, these uh, sort of things form. You know, it started to affect my life. Uh, let me just tell you about my pains and stuff. So I, at some point in time, the body started breaking down. I was told by my physicians that, you know, you're starting to develop diabetes. We may have to put you on insulin. You need to lose some weight. You need to lose some weight. If another doctor told me you need to lose some weight one more time, I was going to get it tattooed on my forehead. You know, it's like, yes, I know. This should also sound familiar, and it really resonates with me. For years, people would say to me, why don't you just lose weight? They may as well ask, why don't you grow a few inches taller? In that state of hypoglycemia and hyperinsulinemia, one doesn't decide to lose weight. The only way I could outsmart my body, and I finally did, was to cut carbs and increase fat, lowering my insulin and removing the cravings. But there are alternate opinions on the reason we crave these bad foods. Here's Jason again. Some people say that these food cravings are a response to some sort of deficiency. That is, people want to get um, nutrients and therefore they're just eating whatever to get these nutrients. So if you have very um, sort of uh, foods that are low in nutrient density, then you're eating a lot of calories just to try and get the nutrients that you need. Um, that sounds pretty good, but it really has no basis in reality. 
if you look at what people want to eat, they want to eat sugary, starchy foods. There's really no nutrients in it. If you're eating white bread and jam, there's no nutrients in it. If you want Cheetos, there's no nutrients in it. You're not, your body is not chasing calories just on the off chance that it's going to get some nutrients. How many people say, man, I am just like craving some liver? Beef liver is one of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet, and yet we seldom crave it. I certainly don't. I like it fine. I mean, I'll have some pate and so on, but liver and onions, it's barely on the menu anymore. Your body is not craving these nutrients the way it craves, say, salt. So if you are very salt-depleted, you get thirsty, you're craving salt. There's two completely separate issues here. There's nutrients, and there's energy, getting enough overall energy to survive. So they're separate. I mean, they're related, but they're separate. They both come from foods, but they're separate. How much uh, fat we gain is a hormonal issue. It has um, nothing to do with the nutrients. Like, um, you don't get obesity due to, say, vitamin C deficiency. You get scurvy. If you have certain vitamin B deficiencies, you get beriberi. You don't get obesity. If you have iron deficiency, you get anemic, you don't get obese. So obesity is not a nutrient deficiency state. And these cravings are not developing because we crave nutrients. These are developing because they're uh, engaging the food reward systems in our brain. So this behavior of reward binging was only making Mark sicker and sicker. Every time I would go back to the doctor and he would continue to tell me that I needed to lose weight and also we needed to increase my dosage of insulin, um, I don't know that that did me any favors. I don't know that the food that I craved was not necessarily based on the full raft of chemicals I was putting in my body every day. By that point, I had such high blood pressure, such high cholesterol, such high blood sugars. I was on six or eight blood pressure pills a day, a statin, a blood thinner. I had developed AFib. I was taking probably... I mean, a big, I'm a big guy, I'm 6'2", I'm probably taking a big handful of just potassium daily to, to deal with the AFib, and it spiraled out of control. Somewhere along in there in the early 2000s, before I moved to D.C., I had a back surgery. Um, it went fine, but I had a little bit of a twinge when I moved to D.C., and I had to go get some injections. And I'm telling you, just walking from my downtown offices to where the, the injection place was, six blocks, over time, I noticed my heel was starting to hurt. I saw a podiatrist. I had a massive heel spur growing, just all these things. Amputation is something you have to be worried about if you've got diabetes. Everyone fears it. I think they fear that more than actually losing their mind or having kidney disease because it's something that they can visualize. And that's Dr. Gary Fetke, Australian orthopedic surgeon and advocate for low-carb, healthy fat. Gary is also the guy that diabetics end up seeing at the end stages of their disease. When people come to see me with their end-stage diabetes, in their feet in particular, then they're coming along with ulcers, they're coming along with pain, they're coming along with deformity. I don't want to see them come to having an amputation, and we go to great lengths to try and preserve their feet, their toes, and then stop these deformities from ulcerating. If they've got uncontrolled diabetes, then I'm going to fail. They're going to fail. We, can't, we cannot win. 
And it is a progressive decline. You come along with a start with a small ulcer and that breaks down and fails to heal. You do end up with smelly feet. You do end up with smelly toes. You do end up with um, you know, meeting and having dressings every single day. Long-term antibiotics and all of those comes with an enormous cost to the individual, cost to the family and a cost ultimately to the community. That can be turned around early on with good tight diabetes control and low carb wins hands down. I've seen so many people get control of their diabetes and actually save their own toes just by adopting it. So I asked Mark, how bad did it get and what kind of medications were you taking? By say 2015, I was 480 pounds, 6'2", 480 pounds. I took 70 units of Lantus insulin daily. I took 1.8, the max dose of that very expensive non-insulin injectable called Victoza. I took two 1,000 uh, milligram extended release metformins daily. I took a glipizide. So there's four blood sugar lowering agents right there. Then I took multiple beta blockers, multiple ACE inhibitors, multiple diuretics, like I said, potassium. I was taking a very expensive and quite dangerous blood thinner called Xarelto. You may see it on the evening news with all the lawyers trying to say how bad it was and, and develop class action suits against the manufacturer. Multiple medications for multiple symptoms, all of which could have been avoided with the right diet. You know, I played football when I was younger. I wasn't always completely, just absolutely horribly obese. I was overweight, but I, I wore my weight well, as you might say. And years of, of body damage, I, I started having really bad knee pains. I've had multiple injections in my left knee, and I'm 42. I'm 42 and two years ago when I moved from DC back to the Midwest. My orthopedic surgeon told me that if I were 50, he would already be scheduling me for a knee replacement. You know, at 6'2 and 480, I was miserable. I looked like I had golf balls for eyes. I was just puffy everywhere. I could hardly move. Pain, swelling, all of that stuff. I was basically in full-blown, non-rate-controlled AFib for six months straight. One fascinating thing about Mark is that he wasn't new to diets. In fact, he had lost a considerable amount of weight twice before two different times in my life I've lost 100 pounds in less than six months. One of them was called the Protein Power Plan. Dr. Fung certainly knows Dr. Mary Dan and Michael Eads. They were the pioneers of like high protein, low carb. I did that for a while, lost 100 pounds on it, gained it back, and then some. And then when I moved to D.C., after I got my back issue sorted out, I quickly lost another 100 and was feeling really good and working out. But it kept coming back worse and worse until finally, I would say January of 2015, I was, that was, that was the worst. That was when I decided you have to do something. I asked Mark, why did he think he would gain back this weight twice after having so much apparent success at dieting? I, I didn't know anything about ghrelin and, and regulating your hunger hormones like I do at the time. I do have, I I have a graduate degree in the healthcare, so I'm in that world. I know I'm not a complete foreigner to the science, but uh, you know, I felt like 
I, th- I think it was probably 51%, 49%, 51% bad food, 49% just unhappiness with the progress of, of a diet, unhappiness with slip-ups and all that. And you just beat yourself up psychologically, and then you become miserable. And then you just go home and order pizza by yourself. So Mark was at the end of his rope. At one point, he actually considered weight loss surgery. So my former employer didn't cover it until right towards the tail end um, when I was thinking about leaving. And so I didn't do it then. My current employer absolutely does cover it. And when I moved and took the job, I was 100% considering it. And in fact, I had a, an umbilical hernia 10 or 12 years ago by a guy, no problem, no big deal. And the same guy, he's a, like a master bariatric surgeon these days. And so I was strongly considering, he's a, kind of a friend of mine, calling him and saying, hey, what can we do here? Let's get this done. And so, yeah, I absolutely considered that. And I, I, I will tell you, as a personal thing, I work in that world a lot, healthcare and, and U.S. healthcare coverage. And, and you know, we, my employer, and I'm, I'm in this team that spends healthcare money on employee healthcare. Mark is actually in the health insurance business. I know these costs. It's mind-numbingly expensive. There's there's a high complication rate. It's not an easy slog. And then certainly a, a large percentage of them will quote unquote eat through it, you know, in, in later years. So it scared me as much as it offered that carrot of could this be your final final chance at glory here. So clearly sheer willpower isn't gonna break the hypoglycemia and hyperinsulinemia metabolic resistance cycle. What do we do about it? Some people think that you just have to kind of um, deal with it. And one of the ways to deal with it, very interestingly enough, is fasting. So one of the studies, so this is Martin C.K. et al., Obesity, Volume 14, Number 1, January 2006. This study is entitled changes in food cravings during low-calorie and very low-calorie diets. They compared a low or 1,500-calorie diet and a very low or 500-calorie diet, and they looked at cravings for sweets, high-fat and fast foods. Um, What they found was very interesting because the low-calorie diet didn't barely do anything at all. Cravings stayed exactly the same, whether you're eating a regular diet or whether you're eating a slightly calorie-restricted diet. When you went to very low-calorie diets, what happened was that the cravings basically just went away. So, and this was true for sweets, fats, carbohydrates, and everything. So cravings just went down to like zero. This is a little bit counterintuitive sometimes, but this is what we see all the time. That is when you don't uh, feed that sort of addiction, it gets better. So it's like going cold turkey. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous. But if you think about it, it kind of makes sense because food doesn't decrease your appetite. It increases your appetite, especially at low doses. So that's why we have appetizers. When you eat a little something, you get more hungry. You don't get less hungry, which is why the reason that we give to people to eat six or seven times a day, you eat a little bit to take away the hunger, you'll you'll eat less later on. It's not true. You'll eat more later on. And it's the same with the cravings. If you give in to the cravings a little bit, it will get worse or it won't go away. Think about what happens when you have a really um, itchy rash. Is the answer to scratch it a little bit all the time? No, because as parents, we know that if you scratch that, 
it will get more itchy. So sweets and other carbohydrate cravings are much the same. If you scratch that itch, it'll get worse. If you give in to those cravings, it will get worse. The only way to deal with it is to go to a very low carbohydrate diet or a very low calorie diet or fasting. By getting rid of it entirely, the cravings go down over time. And um, it, it, it's in fact been looked at in uh, multiple studies. This meta-analysis by C.N. Kahatharawa et al. published in 2017 in Obesity Reviews and titled Extended Calorie Restriction Suppresses Overall and Specific Food Cravings, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. The criteria for this meta-analysis were studies conducted on subjects with obesity which implemented calorie restriction for at least 12 weeks and measured food cravings using the food craving inventory, both pre-intervention and post-intervention. So this uh, meta-analysis reviewed all eight studies that are available in the literature. And then what they found was that for uh, interventions lasting at least 12 weeks, uh, it consistently showed decreased food cravings with sort of intensive uh, caloric restriction. The point being is that if you are kind of a sugar addict, then you need to stop eating sugar. One, you have to stop it, but two is you have to get the support that you need to stop it. So in October 2016, Mark's mother sent him Jason Fung's book, The Obesity Code. Strictly from a perspective of, hey, this sounds out there. What do you think of the science behind it? And I said, okay, let me check it out. And so I read the first couple chapters, and immediately I was like a kid in a candy store. My eyes were wide. This is the way to think about this stuff. This is a solution that, that, that a lot of physicians today just haven't really stumbled on or for whatever reason they're not willing to consider it in that way but I mean it it spoke to me very quickly and I knew at that point I will tell you I don't mean to be cocky but at that point having not even embarked on anything yet just reading a few chapters of that book and continuing to read it I knew that if I did it it would it would be successful I knew I asked Mark what was it about the obesity code that rang true with him and he told me you know it wasn't so much the whole paleolithic you know man evolving and how it worked and we ate mostly meat and fat and you know every once in a while carbohydrates when they were in season he got all that but what got him was jason's calling out of bad science phony baloney studies you know that is the in the i used to be in healthcare and academia so that's the world i lived in and that's what really made me think hey these studies that come out you have to really question the, the statistical methodology that they use to show that the drug A is good and you have to really think about the funding. And so that's what really keyed it into me. Like, hey, a lot of people stand to lose a lot of financial income here if all of a sudden the world got really healthy on quite a cheap solution like this. In general, there's a lot of data that's used from observational studies, which can show only association, not causation. Science 101. And that's Nina Teicholz, author of The Big Fat Surprise, named Science Book of the Year by The Economist in 2014. It's just an association. It just suggests that there might be a connection there, but it's not proven. Um, And just to give you an idea of how weak that data is, when they actually test 
these claims from observational studies that are associations, they actually test them in clinical trials, which can show cause and effect, they can only be confirmed zero to 20% of the time. That means 80% of the time they're wrong. That means 80% of the time you see a report in a newspaper saying X is associated with Y, that is 80 to 100% likely to be wrong. That's how weak that epidemiological data is, that observational data is. In medicine, if you were going to approve a drug, the standard error has to be a correlation of five to 600 times. That means the so-called relative risk has to be five to six. I can tell you that in the vast majority of nutritional findings, you know, X food is connected to X rate of heart, Y rate of heart disease or something like that. All of those findings are less than two. They don't even begin to reach that level of five to six. A correlation is considered worth acting upon, like in the drug world, when it's five to six times greater. So let's say a um, person taking drug X is five to six times less likely to have high, get high blood pressure than, than the person who doesn't take it. It has to be a relative risk of five to six times. The, the correlation for red meat and cancer is 1.17 for fresh meat and 1.18 was the correlation for processed meats. So Mark decided to try Dr. Fung's ideas. Thankfully, I noticed that you could become a long-distance patient. I went on there, I paid my money, I got linked up with, with Megan in the sessions and started doing that. I did the initial consult where you have the three-hour session with her, talk about nutrition and how it would go. The first meeting, I didn't know what to expect. I just, thankfully, Megan didn't make me go first, and everyone went around. And immediately, I started hearing answers to questions that I was going to ask, but already you know, offered by others. And I thought, okay, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. Any problem I have, this is going to be my support. You know, everybody has their own little tweaks and strategies to this. But for me, a big thing initially was purging my house of anything that was not, not good. This is a great strategy. We're so used to popping chips and crackers. And when you get rid of all that stuff and replace it with healthier options, it's much easier to get started. On many days early on, including up right up to this day, there are days that, you, that, that in your brain you have set aside as fasting days and then weakness takes over and you end up turning that into a non-fasting day. At least, at least when you do that, having not bad food in your house allows that not to be so bad. So Mark's an incredibly busy businessman. And that, of course, is Megan Ramos, director of the Intensive Dietary Management Program. Monday through Friday, his work life is really, really hectic. He works long hours, and he has really long days. He does lots of traveling um, almost every week, every other week for work. He's always on the road, and it's always a quick business trip here and there. It's nothing really extravagant, but his weekdays are just so crazy. And then his weekends, well, he likes to have fun. As most of you have learned by now, Mark's a fun guy. He's got a great personality. He's a very magnificent personality and draws in a lot of people um, so he likes to have fun so Mark works hard and Mark plays hard with Mark's busy schedule he really didn't have time to shop and cook and prep food so Megan started him right away on a fasting regimen I was already eating one meal a day anyway one giant grotesque gorging meal most of the time 
but for the most part, I was I was not a three meal a day eater anyway, so that part wasn't wasn't difficult. And I found that fasting it, itself, everything that I read and had heard from the groups came true. He expected the hunger pangs. He expected being lightheaded, and dutifully took his salt. Salt and or mineral water both have worked for me. You grab a, like when I'm at work, I'll grab a Perrier. I even keep now salt at my desk, but early on I didn't. You know, you didn't want anybody. I didn't want anybody to know I was doing it. They all, of course, everybody has so many opinions about you. So we got into a fasting regimen with Mark where he'd start off fasting Monday through Friday. But on the weekends, Mark would revert to his standard carby diet. Um, And as a result, Mark was always suffering on Monday and Tuesday into his fast. And Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, he started to feel great. But Monday and Tuesday is pretty much just using those days to clean up what he ate in his system. He'd first have to clean out his glycogen stores from all the carbs that he ate on the weekend. And he wasn't really getting into fat burning until Wednesday and Thursday. Struggling um, to get into the fast on Monday and Tuesday, um, it, it sort of become a big psychological hurdle for Mark and, and most people whose diets aren't that great. So Mark realized, he's like, all right, I got to get a grip on this. I got to start cleaning up my diet. Mark knew what to do, but of course, it's hard to break habits when you've been under the influence of hormones, hormones that implore you to eat all the time for so long. That's just the way it is. So he said, enough's enough. He's like, there are options out there. I got to suck it up and I got to start eating well on the weekends. And he did. And this is when Mark's weight really started to melt off. And this is when he became a fasting machine. So I lost an initial chunk. Probably within three months, I'd lost 60 pounds and my diabetes had come way down. You know, untreated, my sugar was 13 my A1C was 13. Once it was treated, and that's even with 70 units of insulin, it's still like 8.9, 9.1, right around that range. And now on no medicines, it's 5.8, last check. I had cut my insulin dose in half, and I had already removed the other injectable that I was taking and my metformin dose in half. And very quickly, my primary physician was on board with the fung solution. Once he saw my results, he said, hey, listen, I don't talk to them. Whatever you tell me they tell you to do, I will do for you. This seems to be a common reaction of most doctors who witness a patient reversing diabetes with diet for the first time. Whatever it is you're doing, keep doing it. So he quickly was was taking me off my insulin like I'd asked. I was immediately off that statin. My cholesterol went from 300 and something down to like 130. I consider Mark to be very lucky that his doctor got behind him like he did. I wasn't so lucky. I asked Mark about this. This is kind of the world I lived in. I almost went to med school. A lot of my friends are doctors. And so I just know how it goes with, with physicians. And you get in your swim lane, and it's hard to get out of it with what you, how you treat a patient and what you're taught and, and studies you read. And initially, he was quite skeptical. He told me that, hey, I don't care. I'll let anybody try anything for, for 90 days. Come see me in three months, and if you're having success, then we'll talk about future state. Because immediately, I was already ready to tell him, hey, I'm going to start this thing. It's going to help help me lose 150 pounds, get me off all my meds. Are you on board? And he was like, uh, okay, sure, we'll let you try. So to the thousands of people who have done it, like Mark, like myself, like Richard Morris and Brenda Zorn and all the people in our community, 
We know that type 2 diabetes is reversible. So why do doctors and medical professionals then continue to enforce the idea that type 2 diabetes is both progressive and irreversible? If you simply give medications to a type 2 diabetic, the standard medications, insulin, sulfonylureas, metformin, they'll be pre-diabetic and then they'll be diabetic and then they'll go on metformin and then they'll go on two medications and three medications, then insulin, then more insulin and more insulin. This process takes about 10 or 15 years, but if you are continuously taking more and more medications to deal with the same problem, then your diabetes is getting worse. It's not getting better. Because the medications uh, are not able to kind of make the diabetes better, people think it's chronic and progressive. Similarly, because our dietary advice to people, which is cut your calories, lower the fat, uh, do more exercise, is ineffective, we've sort of given up on sort of lifestyle treatments. What we learned in medical school, that is eat less, cut your calories, move more, is so ineffective uh, we know that there's about a 1% success rate, so we basically don't even bother. And we see that all our medications that we give people don't really cause any reversal. As a doctor, you can either think that one, we're doing something wrong here, and we need to figure out what we're doing wrong and make it better. That's the hard thing to do, and unfortunately that's not the, um, the path that doctors took. The path that we took is that, well, it's a really bad disease. This is what happens and that's it. You know, it's not our fault. We're doing the best that we can. It's just a bad disease. That's life. It's like getting older. You can't get younger no matter how hard you want it. The problem with that whole attitude is that it's it's completely, it's a sort of defeatist attitude and it contributes to a lot of learned helplessness. That is, if you tell somebody that it's inevitable and there's nothing you can do about type 2 diabetes, they will simply give up trying because there's no point. It's inevitable. We have several studies showing reversal of type 2 diabetes using weight loss or bariatric surgery. The first was Poiris et al. published in 1992 in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition titled Surgical Treatment of Obesity and Its Effect on Diabetes. This shows that you can take a 500-pound man with type 2 diabetes and reroute his gut while reducing the size of his stomach in a bariatric procedure called the Ruin-Y gastric bypass. Essentially, it's a surgically enforced fast and that man would start to gradually lose weight over the following months. But his diabetes completely disappears in the first month, and 10 years later it is still gone. The disease itself is not the problem. The problem is the way we treat it, which is ignore the diet and give lots of medications. If you use a lot of drugs to treat a dietary disease, then nothing happens. The standard dietary advice we gave, that is low-fat diets, calorie-reduced diets, obviously did not work because we've done it for so many years. We've done it for 50 years. And cutting calories, one, didn't lose to weight loss, and two, didn't lead to type 2 diabetes reversal. What doctors tried to do is claim that it wasn't their fault, their advice is good, but the disease is bad. 
And what these studies of bariatric surgery showed is that the disease is not the problem, it's the treatment. The, the doctors and the, the sort of uh, diabetes associations still won't admit that. They'll still say this is a chronic irreversible disease. But really, every single day in the office, we see, you know, three or four at least people who are completely off their medications and their, their sugars, uh, as measured by A1C, have gone to normal. Uh, do they have to work at it? Absolutely, they have to work at it in order uh, to stop it from coming back. If you go back to the diet that gave you type 2 diabetes, you will get it again. But that doesn't mean that the disease itself is chronic, irreversible, or incurable. So the second thing is if you take somebody with type 2 diabetes, say a friend of yours has type 2 diabetes, and um, they get started on metformin, for example, and then they come to you, they say, oh, hey, I lost 50 pounds, I went off my medications, I don't need them anymore, my sugars are fine. Well, what would you say? You say, well, that's great, you know, I keep up the good work. What you wouldn't say is something like, oh, the American Diabetes Association says it's chronic and irreversible, so you're clearly a liar. Uh, no, everybody knows. The doctors know, the patients know, everybody knows that taking care of your diet will lead to diabetes reversal, type 2 diabetes, not type 1 diabetes. But yet we pretend otherwise. All the doctors, all the Diabetes Association pretends otherwise and then tries to drug you instead of telling you how you can fix your diet to reverse it. So in Mark's case, he's a severe diabetic. 70 units of insulin a day, that's a ton. And yet he's able to come off of it completely within a matter of uh, months. Diabetes is a chronic disseminated vascular disease that contributes to heart attacks, it contributes to strokes, it contributes to cancer, it's the leading cause of kidney disease, the leading cause of blindness, and the leading cause of amputations. You can't get diabetic kidney disease or diabetic nerve damage or diabetic retinopathy, which is cause of blindness, if you don't have diabetes. So all of these problems all of these things that cause so much pain to people, it's completely preventable. And it's preventable for free. Because what you're doing, uh, of course, when you're fasting, especially some of these longer extended fasts that Mark does, is that you're allowing your body to naturally burn off all that sugar. Because it's all that sugar that's making you sick. So if you don't eat, your blood sugars will fall. Well, if, and if you continue to not eat, you're going to lose body fat and body weight. So what's wrong with that? Why don't we do that? Why don't we use the body's own natural healing ability instead of medications? But that's not what we tell people. We say, oh, eat all the time. Eat six times a day. Eat 55% uh, sugar in your diet and take your insulin. I love when Dr. Fung gets all fired up. Makes me mad. All right, well, let's get back to Mark's story. 
it, in the, my first initial chunk of weight loss was like this cathartic moment of, ah, oh, I found my solution. This is going to work. Okay. And I was immediately planning phase two, three, five down the road. Well, I will tell you, again, my, my problem in all of this being as much psychological as, as diet, I got a little cocky. And so three, four, five months down, having 80 pounds under my belt and just weight shedding like crazy, you, you tell yourself, oh, I can handle this. I can do this. Well, let's, let's have Chinese food tonight as a, as a reward to yourself. And then, you know, the weight just is not going to come off that fast. That's quite simply how it works. You can have food that you normally would never dream of eating, and you will have days of setbacks as a result. If you're prepared for those setbacks, fine. I learned very quickly that my cockiness was short-lived and I needed to really get right back into the swing of things, get back in my routine of fasting, fats, fasting, fats, rather than kind of just playing it all by ear. And what gave him that control was the fasting. His fasting had really reset his hormones, lowered his insulin levels, lowered his ghrelin levels, primary hunger hormone level, that gave him the ability to be more mindful about these foods and weigh the pros and cons of whether, is, is it really going to be worthwhile rewarding myself with that piece of pumpkin pie? Is it really going to be worth that worthwhile? What's Mark tomorrow going to say? How's Mark on Monday going to feel? And Mark really became mindful of so that's a long-winded answer to say my, I had a short, a short burst of weight loss and then a little bit of a plateau, but it was not a plateau in the sense that you go on these other diets and you, you try hard and eventually the diet stops working. It was a plateau because I stopped eating the way I needed to eat. He realized that there were other items in the menu that he could order that would help satiate him, that would help make him feel good, that Monday's Mark would thank him for. So that was one of the real key pieces with Mark, was just to jump in full force with fasting. This guy had a terrible relationship with food, primarily because he didn't have time to eat well in the first place. Eating well requires a lot of prep, requires a lot of effort, and he just didn't have that time. He, and so he had this you know, negative relationship with food and with dieting and with weight loss. So we got him into a healthier mindset and he's just doing great. Uh, then I quickly started fasting and eating fats a lot more stringently and weight started flying off again. I'm buying new clothes like crazy. My, my clothing budget has been blown for the past 13 months because I'm buying new dress clothes almost every six to eight weeks. I asked Mark what he ate when he wasn't fasting during his second phase of weight loss. I ate mostly fat in the, in the way that a good ketogenic person should only eat fats, but I ate a lot of bacon. I had red, red meat, all grass-fed natural stuff. Avocados are my friend. Spinach was one of my favorite vegetables already, so I just did a lot of spinach. And eggs and bacon are like my favorite meal of all time, so you really can just throw those in any time of day, and that's a great, great meal. So when he really got going with fasting and feasting ketogenically on the weekends, he was averaging 20 pounds a month weight loss for a good three or four months, totaling about 80 pounds. And so then when I switched it from five to two, I didn't switch too drastically. I didn't go to 
you know, every other, I would basically do two days fasting and then maybe I'd do two days of eating. Then I'd do four days fasting and say three days of eating. I really mixed it up like that. And as you might imagine, the, the less fasting and more eating days you have in row, the slower your weight loss is. And so when you find that, that right point for you and dial it in, then it just kind of runs on, on automatic in the background. So here's the moment you've all been waiting for. Let's hear about Mark's total success from when he started the keto fasting lifestyle to this very day. I'm 153 pounds in 13 months. I went from basically 479 to like 320, I don't know what it was, just recently 320 something. It's it's interesting how you revise your goals as you go along. Initially, you don't set too big a goals because that's just a recipe for failure. But my goals have gotten increasingly more uh, eager, let's say, as I've gone along and realized that this is possible. This can be done. You can go from being in a poor state of health, obese, everything, for, to being quote-unquote normal if you put the time in. I asked Mark to tell me a personal story about being challenged and overcoming it. Well, I'll give you a before story. So before I really, before I really stumbled onto this solution, uh, I was at a business meeting downtown Chicago when we had, we as a group had opted to walk from my hotel to the business meeting, and I, I, I overwhelmingly was almost paralyzed with this fear of dread. I did not want to walk this distance. It was August in Chicago. It was humid. We had dress clothes on, obviously, and I just could not stand the idea or the thought of walking with my bad knee and my bad heel and all this weight, sweating and huffing and puffing. Could not bear the thought. But I thought, okay, you know, hey, you're going to do it. Just do it. Everybody's doing it. So we start walking. Everything's fine. We're walking down Wacker, headed towards the lake. We get very close to the meeting, maybe two blocks away, and it's purely uphill. And I could not walk that rest of that distance up the hill I had to stop I had to tell a co-worker hey hang on and so she she waited for me and just about the time I was getting ready to continue to walk I look up at the top and there's everyone else at the top of the hill looking back seeing me having to stop and take a breather literally from walking even though I had just begun the, the fung system I had maybe lost five or ten pounds at that point but that was a moment to me that made, made it sink in like you're doing the right thing you have got to do something here that was then what about now I just got off a four week straight travel schedule of either four or five days in each travel week and so I'm just going crazy with all this travel and my co-workers who I was traveling with cannot believe that I'm beating, you know, we're walking through the airport and I'm miles ahead of them looking back like, hey, come on, hurry up. So that was me. I'm, I'm looking back at them now a year later rather than being looked at, you know, with, with pity, quite frankly. And there's a lot of, a lot of other sort of one-off examples like that all the time. I used to huff and puff just walking up the stairs to get my, get to my car after work every day. And now I take those stairs two by two. It's just nothing. It's a complete and utter life change. We heard Dr. Fung talking about how you, yes, you need to get rid of sugar and carbohydrates, but it also helps to have a community, and the IDM program was that community for Mark. The first meeting, I didn't know what to expect. You hear the horror stories of the people on, on Weight Watchers or Jenny Craig, where there's the support group and everybody goes around and talks about their failures or, or successes. And 
I didn't, I'm a very private person. I didn't really want all that scrutiny, but now that I have had this success, I'm the opposite. I like people to know about this. I like talking about it. And because my schedule is quite screwy all the time, I don't necessarily have a standard time per se that I like to do the group. And so as a result, I'm always on with different folks that are, that are at different stages in their process. And that has been empowering to me to hear you know, for people who are essentially versions of myself in the journey were way early on struggling with the same things that I did early. And it feels good to tell them, oh, listen, hey, here's how you handle that problem. I had the very right. same problem and here's what works perfectly. So initially that was me receiving the advice and now it's sort of me giving the advice. So I asked Mark what his end goal was. Is he going to continue? I want more. I mean, now I'm getting greedy. Now I really know that this will work. And so goal weight is a relative term. You, again, you don't want to set goals for yourself that are crazy or else you'll just never hit them and then you're just constantly failing. So you got to set reasonable goals. I have adjusted my goal weight in this process three or four times. And has Mark ever met Dr. Fung and Megan in person? Well, I had the pleasure of meeting them in person just a couple of weeks ago and they really are exactly how they are on the, on the calls and on the on the podcast in person. They were working hard, really trying to help people, and I was quite impressed. They have saved my life. I told them multiple times, thank you very much. This is a solution that quite literally, in every sense of the word, saved my life and continues to. Ah, another happy ending. Can you stand it? And we're only on the fifth patient. We've got a lot to go. Well, next week on the Obesity Code podcast, it's our special Thanksgiving episode. You'll want to tune in for that. And that's our story for this week. You've been listening to the Obesity Code podcast, lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. I'm Carl Franklin. We'll see you next time. Thank you.